0: Hello and welcome back to the Cookie Jar Golf Podcast. Bruce here and in this episode I'm joined by Sam Williams and a very special guest, Peter Dawson. As many of you will know, Peter served as Secretary and later Chief Executive of the RNA from 1999 through to 2015 and we were lucky enough to visit St Andrews this past week to record this podcast with him. I first met Peter a few years ago when we struck up a conversation at the driving range and I've gotten to know him a bit more since then. He's a terrific guy with a brilliant sense of humour and always very generous with his time, so it was a real privilege to sit down and chat to him about his career in golf. We hear about his introduction to the game, how the job at the R&A came about, the growth of the Open Championship, the wider responsibilities for the R&A in terms of governance and amateur golf, as well as golf's return to the Olympics during Peter's tenure as President of the International Golf Federation. So it's a wide ranging discussion and as you'll hear Peter is a fantastic storyteller And kind enough to share with us some of the stories from over the years of witnessing great players up close and having a front row seat at some of the greatest championships in the game so without further ado let's jump right in and i hope you enjoy the pod watch this Peter, thanks very much for joining us. That's a pleasure, Bruce. Great to see you here in St Andrews. Yeah, of course. Just here looking out across the, uh, the old course, where in a few months we'll be um, playing host to the 150th Open Championship. So um, I guess the town's starting to get that feel about it, of building towards uh, the Open, having kind of been waiting for a, for an extra year, really, if you like. Yes, it certainly is. Do you know, it's uh, there's always a buzz when the Open comes to town,
1: but it's the 150th playing this year, which gives it uh, something extra.
2: a huge year, isn't it? It's going to be a very, very exciting year for the very, Open Championship. Very, exact,
1: very exciting. I'm sure the R&A have all got all sorts of special events planned that some have been announced and some yet to be announced. But, uh, well, you'll start to see grandstands going up uh, in April and uh, it'll be full bore from there on, really, right up till the championship starts and then some poor devils have got to come and take it all down
0: again. But, uh <laughs> It comes down quicker than it goes up. So you've obviously had an incredible career in golf. And I'd like to sort of unpack that if um, if we can in, in, in some detail. But before we get into that, um, one burning question we did have is uh, you've obviously been on that 18th green a number of times presenting the, the claret jug um, to to the eventual winner. Is it champion golfer of the year or champion golfer for the year? Well,
1: <laughs> that's a very, very good question, because uh, way back when I started at the RNA, I wasn't sure. And uh, so I I consulted my predecessor, Michael Bernalek, who said, oh, it's definitely of. So we played back every open that he'd announced, and 50% were of and 50% were for. So that got me no further. And then there was a pre- professor from... Of English from Toronto University wrote in about it and he thought it should be of. So we decided it should be of and I, I said of every year, except when I played all mine back, I found I said for once way back really? early on. But it's of, it, it, yeah. it's definitely <laughs> of. Champion golfer of the year, winner of the gold medal, and <laughs> champion golfer. You know, I still get people come up to me in the street occasionally with a, a father with a young boy and they'll say, Mr. Dawson, great to speak to you. Will you do it for little Johnny? I know exactly what he means, but I pretend I don't. But I eventually, and he gets the, dad gets the phone out on video. And I say, ladies and gentlemen, with a score of 279, the winner of the gold medal and the champion golfer of the year is Little Johnny. And off they go. Oh. Oh, see,
2: that what was one it? of my questions. I, I, I sort of woke up this morning. I knew we were recording this podcast and thought, I just, I'd love to know how it sounds with my name on the end of it. And I've got a, I've got a feeling I can only dream,
0: but yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to save that, save that for the end, I think, because neither of so. us going to get there, but definitely want to hear, hear those words. Wouldn't yeah. You? <laughs> so.
1: Yeah. The way you're playing, Bruce, just carry on. <laughs> <laughs> Won't
0: be long.
2: The president's butterman as <laughs> oh, no, match yeah. play specialist. Winner and runner up. Yeah. If we can turn the open championship into match play, I think I'd probably wager a few quid on, on Bruce. <laughs> 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 so
0: moving, moving on to the important stuff. Um, What was your introduction to the game, Peter? How did you sort of first, kind of get your first Well, you know,
1: I I don't exactly remember the day that golf hit me, but um, it was in Edinburgh I was a schoolboy there, and I was about 11 years old, and there's lots and lots of golf courses in Edinburgh and I joined a club which was only about 10 minutes walk from where I lived with another uh, school chum, and we just played away, and uh, sadly Lothian Burns no longer with us it was a it closed down uh, when golf was probably at its its low point in the UK, and that's very sad to me. But uh, you know, it was a pound a year for junior subscriptions, or six old pence. That's two and a half p around if you wanted to play a green fee. And uh, so it wasn't it wasn't an expensive game. And as soon as I started playing, the bug hit. You know, and I just just kept on and uh, three three years later I think it was we moved away from Scotland down to Essex and uh, I joined Thorpe Hall there when uh, amazingly Michael Bernalek was at the peak of his powers but we'll maybe talk a bit more about that later. Wow it's yeah.
2: amazing isn't it the Scottish game I think has a it's, it's just always it's so much more accessible isn't it for people playing and I think it's just it it's almost a rite of passage for a Scotsman you know to play the game growing up and you know, you talk there about, you know, the cost of playing the game, and it's just such a such a key thing. And I think, to be fair, it's quite good across the whole of the UK in terms of price points for yeah, June I, even today. I, I, but you talk about there, It's like, how can you miss golf and the influence when it's, you know, 2p around or whatever? I know,
1: And uh, I, th- I think in many parts of England it's not that different. Yeah. But it, it is it, – and, and Ireland, in fact. But it is in Scotland. It's a, the people's game, really. There's so many little courses in all the small towns and so on that uh, – it's very accessible, and uh, that's why it's endured here. It began here, and it's enduring here.
0: It's great. So you had quite an accomplished junior career, if I'm if I'm right in saying <laughs> that. And am I, 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 I I'm right in thinking you're know, playing with the likes you mentioned? Obviously, Benalic, who who was um, who who was. Uh, sort of the the preeminent amateur of the day at at that point, but also the likes of Peter Oosthaus and and Peter Townsend, who are are contemporaries of yours. Were were you quite a keen sort of junior golfer? Yeah, yeah, I was. I lived in the southeast
1: at that time and I I won the Essex Boys Championship a couple of times, Essex under 25, stuff like that. And uh, when I went to, to, to bigger events, if you like, covering the southeast of England and played alongside Peter Townsend, who... To me, was the most exciting golfer I'd ever seen. He was a couple of years older than me. but uh, Fantastic player when he was young. And Peter Oosterhouse, who uh, went on to do so well as a pro. Um, and he... I never thought he'd be as good as Townsend, but he turned out to be better. And uh, it's amazing how people develop in golf. But, you know, great people, old friends, people you know for a long, long time. And uh, uh, when I was 18, I went off to university, and it was... It was a diet, to match, play golf and stuff. And I think my ability to put a whole round together rather deserted me. But uh, that was, they were good days too.
2: Was there ever a period where you thought, you know, maybe playing the game for a living was, was ever on the cards? And, you know, was there, where was the kind of turning moment in, in your head? Well, I thought about it.
1: And um, I fancied that maybe I hit the ball well enough, but I certainly didn't putt well enough. And I was doing fairly well at school and got into Cambridge and... Glad I went that route because I would have starved if i had been a golf pro I mean, there was, I mean, no, no way I could have competed with these these guys and uh, But it did it did cross my mind. Yeah. I loved the game and I was fairly good at it without being exceptional
2: And I guess always knew then you wanted to sort of maintain that proximity to golf then but just maybe through a sort of more of a business path myself.
1: Yeah, I, I Did everything young I suppose I got married young when I was 21 started working uh the group I was working for took a big punt and made me managing director of one of their subsidiaries when I was 23 or four, So the career went along and the golf took a bit of a backseat seat. Tried to keep playing. Played county golf for quite a few years, but um, came back into it later on when I joined the RNA and was on the rules of golf committee and then, of course, went to work in golf when I became secretary of the club and so on. Um, but that's a whole different story. Um,
0: So how, how, yeah, how did that, how did that job of secretary of the RNA sort of come about in, in 1999?
1: Well, Michael Bernalek, my predecessor, um, decided it was time to retire and the RNA started a search for the role. And, um, one or two people, well, I was a member of the club, I was on the rules of golf committee and one or two people said to me, you know, you should apply for this. I said, don't be daft, I've I've never worked in golf in my life, that's absurd. And then I thought more and more about it. We lived in Northumberland, and we were very happy there. My wife didn't particularly want to move. And my son kept saying to her, oh, let him apply, he'll never get it. (laughs) And then I I got to the last 12, don't worry, Mum, he'll never get it. Last six, this is not going to plan, James, he'll never get it. And then when I got it, he wanted to know if the job was hereditary, which I thought was quite quite funny. And, uh, yeah, no one more surprised than me to, to get the job. Uh, The final interviews were held at the Balmoral Hotel in Edinburgh and there were six on the shortlist and uh, it was Monday morning, Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon and uh, So it was quite a grilling interview. I remember I was on last of the six and I remember I had the worst cold I've ever had. I was just streaming cold and had to do a presentation on the future of amateur golf as part of the interview so how oh, I coughed and spluttered through that now I remember Ian Webb who was the chairman of the general committee of the RNA at the time and there was a five-man interview panel and I walked in sat down he was looking at the papers and he, he looked up at me and he said uh, do you think you've underachieved well, that was a great question so <laughs> I thought now the, the, the clever answer here is to say yeah, but I'm here to do something about it. But I thought that might be a bit brash, so I said, "Yeah, well spotted." And on the <laughs> <way>. <laughs> so yeah, that was quite uh, quite harrowing. That and then a couple of days later, I got the phone call, and uh, Ian Ian was based in Belfast, and I went over there and we talked about it. And stranger than fiction, there I was. But I had a, a four—let me think now—three four-month handover with Michael, and he went on to be captain. Um, thank goodness he did the '99 Carnoustie Open, and I didn't. <laughs>
0: yeah. I can imagine that was quite the introduction to it. There. Well, it
1: was. It taught me a lot actually about how much you've got to keep on top of the venues, and mm. you really be sure everything's just just as it should be. So, I, every year I spend a lot of time at the open venues and the planning and the on the golf course stuff much more than the. Logistics.
0: And also the engraving of the claret jug, I guess, as well, because, um, you know, if you, if you maybe think that the eventual
1: winners... Oh, that that is you know, the, the tensest moment of the year, because there's great pressure at the end of the Open for television and stuff to get on with the ceremony. And... Um, there's a temptation to unleash the gra- engraver rather mm. too early if you're not careful. Just inca- you know, Imagine if the, the guy who looks like winning takes eight up the last or there's some scorecard infringement. So you, you can't really really unleash him too early. But I, I remember when I started at the R&A, the, the engraver... I'll tell you a bit of the history, first of all, about engraving the Open because in, in days gone by, it was the champion's responsibility to come back with the claret jug engraved yeah. the following year. And Fred Daly in 1947, when he won it, at Hoylake, he came back next year and the claret jug had Holy Lake on it, not (laughs) Hoylake, and it still does to this day. It's still got Holy Lake rather than Hoylake. And then DiVincenzo, when he came back in 68 after winning in 67, he'd forgotten to have it engraved. And although it went on a couple more years, that was really the start of the engraver.
2: That was Hoylake as well, wasn't it? The that gentleman. was Hoylake as well. Yeah. So
1: I always told Hoylake how much of a part they had in the history of the engraver, and they didn't know it, and uh, and that was good. But there was a, a man called Alex Harvey who was put on, uh, sadly died, but uh, lovely guy, was put on engraving. And by the time I'd got to the RNA, Alex was getting pretty elderly, and uh, I'm sure he wouldn't have minded me saying this. And uh, I thought, goodness me, what if... What if We lose Alex before the next open or something. So I went on a search for uh, an alternate engraver and found one in London. And I came back up to the R&A feeling, well, that's got that put to bed. Blow me, Alex is in the trophy room at the R&A alongside someone else engraving the club's trophies. I said, who's that? Well, that's Alex's son, Gary. And Gary Harvey is a professional golfer and was a very good player and... He actually, very unusually, got into the final of the boys' championship twice. One time he was beaten, I think, by Howard Clark, and the next time he won it. And Gary Harvey engraved his own boys' championship trophy. <laughs> no way. And way. Gary is the, engra- Gary's the engraver to this day. Lovely people, and, and he's still so he's taken over from his dad. And uh, yeah, wow, uh, in- stuff. engravers, the sort of
0: pe- person that you get to know very well in those tense moments at the end of an open. I guess your first Open um, truly in charge in the new role would have been 2000 was, here 2000. At, at St. Andrews yes. in which Tiger sort of conquered all before in him his, I guess he's pomp yeah. yeah I mean that must have been an incredible experience to just be, be at the helm at oh it was
1: um, what a player he was and I guess still is but goodness me he was, he, he was in the middle of a fantastic run then and he just spread eagle the field really as, as he had at the US Open too and uh yeah, it was. It was kind of. It was a great time to start, really. Um, old course at St Andrews, best player in the world winning, and uh, a great success.
2: When you were there, because I, I mean, I suppose I, I should know this, given we're talking and doing this podcast. But you know, your career and your role as you know secretary and chief executive of the RNA spanned for sort of fifteen, sixteen years. 16, I think
1: sixteen years. You know, yeah.
2: like I, I'm guessing predecessors again holding the appointments for similar length. You know. When you took that over in 2000, Tiger's kind of, you know, right in his, you know, prime. Did you feel like, you know, actually we're at a real watershed moment in golf at that point? Or did it, does it just, just kind of see that almost in retrospect now? Is it Did you sort of feel like 2000, like, crikey, this, this is going to change the face of the game here with the way Tiger's playing?
1: Um, Well, first of all, amazingly, each of my three predecessors did 16 years as well as I did for no connected reason. So we had four in a row doing 16 years at the the helm there. And no, I don't think I was clever enough to think this is a watershed moment. In retrospect, it clearly was. But at the time, you know, we'd come through the the Palmer era, the Nicholas era, the Seve, the Faudo and Norman and so on. And maybe at that point, yeah. Tiger was the next one of those, but he very quickly, I think, transcended that myself.
2: Because in that 12 months, a lot of the money had come into the, some of the professional game. And I think, yeah. you know, looking at the the money leaders for the year, I think I think 99 was Duval, I think, and that was sort of you know, about 2 million. And then it jumps up to 6.5 million with mm. Woods that year. Mm. And it hasn't stayed the same. It's still grown, but it's not grown at that level. So clearly that was the point at which, you know, all the purses and everything was sort of flooding into the game as part of that sort of Tiger,
1: yep. Tiger boom. Yes, um, and now, of course, he just got eight million for yeah, uh, just for just for, <laughs> for <Instagram>. publicity, <laughs> which, is, yeah. uh, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, Um but no, it, it, I I got to know Tiger fairly well. I wouldn't say we were close friends by any stretch of the imagination, but always got on well, and um he was someone I could ask ask an opinion about things from time to time and I found that relationship very useful and i'm sure that went back to being in charge when if you like when he won the first his first open championship and then he went on to win two more mm. st andrews and Hoylake. I'm, I'm just amazed he didn't win more actually to be honest yeah all of all of the champions that, that we've had in my time have really been you know pretty good news people and uh good for the game mm. Um, and I think the the way that Links Golf has continued to produce you know these very top players, you always get the odd exception, the odd surprise, but uh, in
0: general they've they've produced a great lot of winners, and I'm sure that'll carry on. Are there any Opens that maybe it's an unfair question, but are there any that stand out in the memories being particularly um, sort of interesting or kind of nail biting to to watch? Not necessarily just to spectate, but also from the sort of organizational perspective, with you know playoffs here and there, and um, you know high high winds that sometimes you have to deal with that makes things interesting. Of course, the the thing that that, that players talk about so much with the Open, which is that, that how important the draw can be to mm. their their chances mm. um, on the weekend.
1: Well, the draw is that's true. You know, the, you do get different weather morning, afternoon, afternoon, morning. Tides come in and out, and so on. And uh, there can be a bit of good, good or bad fortune attached to that. I think the most extreme weather we had when when play went on was at Muirfield in uh, was that two thousand three, I think, two. Pretty sure you usually 2002. Fought, 2002. Yeah. Yeah. Was This was early one Ernie
0: won yeah. in the in the playoff. Yeah, I people think,
1: forget yeah. who was in that playoff. Actually, there were four players ah. in there, and uh, amazingly in retrospect the the chairman of the championship committee at the time decided he'd play the playoff in two twos (laughs) rather than a four ball and and his theory was it was just a continuation of what had happened on the day's play so we we put them out in two twos and uh, the great after dinner storyline is of course you can't play four balls in Muirfield on a Sunday (laughs) but but, uh (laughs) That wasn't the reason. And uh, Ernie it would be great if it was the it real reason. That would be. just be a and legendary. It story. would. It would be great stuff. And uh, and Ernie came through that. Uh, and it was what was it? Thomas Levey, Steve Elkington, and Stuart Appleby. Well, they made up the four. Nice stuff. Uh, but that weather, that it, very extreme weather, when I think Tiger failed to break eighty in it. But Ernie was out in 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 that kind of weather too. So he came through it.
2: When you look at the Open now, and you know, I hate to use the word product, but if you look at it as a, as the entertainment product and what it is, and the showcase for you know one of the you know the greatest tournament I believe in the game, radically different now to maybe where it would have been twenty five years ago, mm. and and kind of you know obviously a lot of that's down to the work that you and your team will have done through your tenure. Was there a kind of conscious thought about where you want it, where you see the Open Championship being, maybe when? when you step down from your role or in 20 years time for instance
1: well and, and it's continued to develop since i retired in, yeah. in 2015 and it's a, it's a bigger it's a significantly bigger event today than it was then and uh, you know ev- every year it gets it gets bigger i think what what the rna has always tried to do and, and still does is on the one hand make it as pure a golf championship on traditional links courses as it possibly can and and, and preserve all those traditions while at the same time, um, capitalising on it commercially, because the RNA uses its 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 financial success to support the game in so many ways, and that that's an important side of the, of the RNA's work. So, so both aspects of the Open are very important, and uh, I I just think you know the way financially the Open's going with with television money, merchandising, hospitality, etc. Um, It'll be making a lot more money now than it did in my time. And in my time, it made a lot more money than it did in Michael Alex. It's it's just the way way it is, really. And um, I think the Open has, because you have to keep reinvesting in a championship, it's very important that it's a financial success year on year if it's going to keep up with the other big events in the game and indeed other sports
2: commercially it's an, it's an incredible beast isn't it now it's an absolute powerhouse and Yeah, you know, we're very fortunate getting to visit a lot of the great links around GB and mm-hmm. you sort of you see the impact This has and that you know, particularly in local communities, you know Portrush would spring to mind has been You know a good example there, where you know town's just a you know, huge beneficiary of the everything that goes yeah, I, I, was, that. I
1: was very pleased to get that agreed with yeah. Northern Ireland at Portrush that the agreement happened in my time and Delighted to see how what a great success that first one was only the Irish could produce an Irish winner yeah. that, If that's not a tautology or something, but uh, yeah amazing that that Shane Lowry won that and uh, Wow, it was a great. Success. I'm
2: sure you won't I'm sure you won't give anything away here, but there's always There's always speculation in there about the sort of where the open would potentially go in due course and You know, Wales obviously has never hosted an open championship Um you know, does it go south of the border in Northern Ireland perhaps in years to come and you know, how global a product could the open championship be? I don't know. Penny for your thoughts there.
1: Well, it? it's um it is the open championship, it has always been played on on Lynx courses in uh the United Kingdom. And uh I doubt if that'll change. Although the amateur has gone to the South of Ireland or the Republic of Ireland once or yeah. twice. Um not for me to say will it go outside of the uk i very much not in the foreseeable future <laughs> i wouldn't have thought um but uh, but it could being the open championship but i think it'll stick to to
0: lynx courses and these islands
1: uh, you as long when you, as we're
0: alive <laughs> you mentioned when um you took over the role that that presentation you gave about sort of the amateur game and, and the rna's role in, in preserving that how, how did that sort of brief evolve um you know, post 2004 and the RNA Limited was set up and alongside all the, um, you know, the, what we've talked about there with the Open and growing the scale of that, but also the, the RNA's responsibilities as sort of the governing body of the game, mm. organiser of, of amateur championships all over the world, not just the amateur here in, in the UK, but things like the Asia Pacific. How, um, you know, how did that sort of occupy your time during your role as chief exec?
1: Well, hugely. The the amateur game is very, very important to the RNA, but of course the amateur game is very different now to what it used to be. There are a very few full-time career amateurs anymore. Uh, still a few, but very, very, not many of them. And young players are getting, are getting better younger. They're getting better. They're better coached. They've got better equipment. They work harder at the game. And I've got no doubt that the vast majority of them fancy themselves as professionals and that's their intention so the RNA has recognized that no question and uh, has promoted such things as the world amateur golf ranking as a, as a vehicle to for amateurs to assess themselves and get into championships the origin of that was in, in 2004 when at that time entry to the amateur championship was based on handicap and the Australian amateur champion was balloted out Really? <laughs> of being plus one or something in not Australia. Enough not good enough, but the Australian yeah. handicap system was much more stringent yeah. than elsewhere. So we thought, oh, this is just dreadful. This can't be right. We're going to do something different. And uh, a chap called David Moyer, who worked at the RNA, uh, I think did more work than anyone to come up with the system. His son, Grant, still works there, quite famous in the world of rules. Um, and uh, that's where it all started. And it's really taken root hasn't it uh, around the world the 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 world amateur golf ranking in 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 rating players and 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 getting them into championship but the the rna has has developed uh amateur events hugely of course since my time it's taken on so many women's events as well with the merger with the, the lgu ladies golf union and alongside the usj and augusta national things like the asia pacific amateur the latin american amateur and so on so it's 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 using um, the success of the Open. That's just another example of financial success of the Open to promote all these events and, and stage them in, on the best courses that they they can find. And that will continue. I think the rules of amateur status, which have been somewhat liberalized recently, are still important because, um, you know, you don't want, do you, for the, the mass of golfers... Uh, we, you know, when we talk at the top end, it's just a very small fraction. Mm. We don't want the mass of golfers competing for huge prizes and everything that that would bring with it, uh, I don't think, in my own opinion. So the rules of amateur status are important, but recognising that the amateur game is a route through to the top, where only a few could make it, of course, uh, a lot of disappointed people. But uh, that's the way of it. The nature of amateur
2: golf is it's very pure, isn't it? I mean, you, know, you talked about the Open Championship and that's a purity to it. Amateur golf, the same, and it, you know, I think getting to watch things like the Walker Cup at Seminole, for example, you know, on the TV and seeing that as a as a you know on a, on a platform to there to to enjoy, I thought that, I thought that was brilliant personally recently. And I think you know, the more and more we do through Cookie Jar, the more we learn about the amateur game and start to see things. There's actually there's so much great stuff out there to see in the amateur yeah. in, in the amateur game and.
1: Yeah, there, I, I, there is the Walker Cup is just a fabulous. It's event. a brilliant event, um, isn't it? And and to get so close to the players and many of the of the matches walk the fairways with them is is great, and it's played in such a good spirit. Mm. Um, I mean the wonderful story, isn't it? In back in when Bill Campbell was playing here on the Old Course, and uh, his partner drove off, and uh, the Americans made four to the Great Britain and Ireland's five on the first and. Uh, was announced that great britain and ireland were one up and <laughs> bill campbell had actually hit a practice putt on the putting green while his partner was driving off and had therefore practiced during the hole and admitted <laughs> it really? and, and he called it on himself and that's the spirit the match yeah. is playing, yeah. which is terrific
2: do you travel to a lot of the walker cups yes right, in, in and my guessing? time pretty yeah. much
1: all of them i think yes yeah yeah um and uh, same spirit the world over. It's also a great meeting place between the RNA and the United States Golf Association, USGA, uh, meetings about rules, amateur status, equipment standards, all those kind of things.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask on the Brilliant that segue point. for someone yeah.
2: who's not done a podcast before that. That was a 10 out of 10 segue, I think, from Peter <laughs> here into one of the, one of the talking points.
0: <laughs> the, the The collaboration, though, with the USGA and, and I guess, Augusta National as well, it, in not just running events, but... But the rules side of things how's that sort of relationship between between the rna and the us well
1: it, it's had its ups and downs i'll be honest but it, it's on much more level keel now than than probably ever in the past we um we didn't see a lot of things eye to eye back around 2000 and the early 2000s but uh that's long in the past now and uh Work together, and there's there's good procedures and systems established to make sure that nothing is decided unless both sides or both parties are 100 percent happy. Augusta National are not directly involved in these things, uh, though they, they are a major championship organizer, and we talk about those things. But it's it's very much the USGA and R&A on the on the rules, the governing bodies, really side of things.
2: And you don't really sort of di- you know divide different aspects. You kind of co. Chair all those different aspects together collectively, isn't it? Which must be quite difficult, I'm guessing, because you know the game in America is very different to the game in, you know. Britain isn't it I think well and you, know, you do realize that you have level. to cater for these things yeah. you
1: know um, I remember there's a rule that you're not allowed to scratch the green or something and the way back and I thought well what's that all about and of course it's all about uh, all about nap on greens and things yeah. and, and you don't think about it out <laughs> yeah, here yes. what you do do elsewhere. Never seen in Britain is <laughs> <it>? <laughs> no exactly and uh, so no it, it works well and and decisions are, are are taken I think collaboratively. There's a tendency the Americans or the wars to want to do things faster than the RNA wanted to, but I think that's in the past
0: too. I mean, American golf's always struck me for just having the kind of extremes almost at. A- both ends of the spectrum in that there's there's definitely a lot of people friends from university who would like that idea of just the the country club atmosphere of maybe going and playing a few holes with a buggy and some music playing which over here we might sort of frown at but then there's there's equally quite a few sort of mid-amateur i look at the mid-amateur circuit for example in america which seems to be something that has been built up and really designed to try and protect the amateur game out there and and players like you know stuart hagerstad who get to play in the masters and you know that they're, they're almost different from the 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 way the game's gone recently that you just mentioned with young amateurs who are, who, who are looking to turn professional seems like maybe over in the united states they're trying to hang on to the idea of of, of having a kind of more of a career amateur golfer or protecting that,
1: yes, that side yes that goes through to senior level as well i mean senior amateurs in america there's a lot of very very good players really yeah very good players in the sort of 50s and 60s and stuff that you don't see here in the same quantity. That's interesting. And weather's got a yeah. lot to do with it. A mm. lot of them live in Florida and places and yeah. play all year in those sort of conditions. Um, but yes, I, th- I think the, it is true that in America um, they have maintained competitive golf at these, at these higher ages. They're more than we have here. Um, and And you do see quite a number of reinstated amateurs who have tried to be pros in America not still playing amateur golf later right. in life, which you don't tend to see here very much either um, Not sure why
0: um, But it's a fair observation mm. What do you think are the sort of biggest changes you would say you've seen in in? In the professional game um, just sort of circling back on that since you since you took over in, in the 1990s I mean, we touched on some of these points earlier with not just the size of the open, but but also i guess the way golf is kind of consumed at home with again you know, broadcasting um and also the growth of of social media is that something that you kind of were beginning to wrestle with towards the end of your tenure at the rna i mean social media is something that obviously we've been kind of huge beneficiaries of, mm. of in recent times but how do you see that kind of playing out at, well i, I don't think we were wrestling with it i think it was a, a
1: good development to to bring the game in in mm. so many different ways to to a wider and wider audience and uh that was just to be welcomed. How, how you, as a, as a championship organizer, you've got to try to be sure that that everything can be monetized, if I can use that word. I mean, you wouldn't want your television revenues to fall away, and no social media revenues build up because they they are quite different models. So, to that degree, one had to be a bit protective and, and so on. But uh, no, it's it, it's it's great that uh, that golf is brought to such a wide audience. I think in the in the playing of the game. Um, but it keeps moving on doesn't it they get bigger stronger better longer hitters um, the equipment debate will rage and, and so on won't and, go anywhere yeah. that debate will it um <laughs> who knows there's everyone's got their own point of view and um i don't, I don't know i it's 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 a tough one for the governing bodies and um if they choose to do something if they choose not to they'll they'll deserve our fullest support because it's, it's it's tough um, but you know the the game is is ever more popular the best players if you like are still winning yes they're hitting more wedge shots than players before and less two irons but uh, they can they can hit two irons when they have to and uh, i i don't deny that i i personally prefer to see bigger clubs hit to greens more often but uh, equally i'd uh, I'd be dead against uh, splitting the rules. Person- yeah. That's a personal view, uh, but um, wh- whatever the, is decided will have been thought through very carefully. I'm sure.
2: It's, I mean, it's you know, the, it's very easy to criticise, you know, the kind of you know current bomb and gouge way of playing, and you know, you see people, you know, people like Bryce and DeChambeau be the obvious people to mention, but they're all bit huge hitters. You know, we're sat above here, above the second hole on the old course. There's a little bit of view. Worry about maybe the, you know, Lynx Golf and some of the British classics and their place in, you know, maybe the Open Championship in the next 50 years if, if the equipment stuff goes unchecked or?
1: Well, the, the equipment stuff is checked. I mean, the, mm. there is nothing that's come out on equipment, d- despite what you might hear marketing wise, that has increased hitting distance significantly for close on 20 years yeah. now. yeah. But the players are getting bigger, they're better coached, they're fitter, they work harder and no doubt as a result the ball will be hit further. The The limits in the rules on the ball and the clubs are, you know, the, the manufacturers are right at the limits of those, mm. and have been for some time. So coming back to your question, Lynx Golf has always been very weather dependent um, and you on the old course here I always thought, for example, you could make it at least six shots harder, uh, with one set of, of whole locations compared with easier ones. Um I still think that's the case. So there are things you can do to to make it a good test. And I think up until now it certainly can Lynx Golf on our best links has continued to be a great yeah. test and you know, the players don't come and, and kill them. Although if you've got a flat calm day, uh after after a wet fortnight, no doubt they would score very low. Yeah. Does that matter? I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting when you you, you talk about the the importance of the of the weather there and how that's actually something that that seems to be embraced now increasingly by american professionals who are traveling over Mm. and certainly just looking back at royal st george's of of last year and whether maybe that was partly influenced by the fact there was a there was a year away from the open for a lot of these pros but the just the incredible um praise that they were they were lauding on the course and the championship for just being a completely different style of golf to, to what they've they've played in yeah. in the united states and it just i think it just naturally begs the question as to whether there's scope for for more championships at the the top end at uh, the professional level you know in in the uk on some of these historic links courses obviously there has been some um collaboration between the european tour and the pga tour on on uh, you know the things like the genesis genesis scottish open for example but i wonder yeah. if you know there's there's something that can be done there in the in the future to Maybe as you say, bring more links courses sort of back into.
1: Well, the I, I was very pleased to to see <coughs> the reaction to Royal St George's um, last time because it hadn't been a, a favourite of the players for mm-hmm. quite some time. But th- I think the setup the setup was was really good. Um, I can't deny. I don't know what the. The attitude in, in the RNA is now, I can't deny that there was a tendency when I was there to keep the open venues special for the open mm-hmm. and not have them used regularly, although the Dunhill has come to Carnoustie and and, uh, and the Old Course very regularly. That's the exception. Um, I remember the Scottish Open being at Carnoustie and, and so on, things like that. Um, PGA, I think Arnold Palmer won the PGA, the British one at St George's, actually, didn't he? A long time ago, I think. Really? I think so. Um, so it ha- it's, it's got a history to it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think we would like to see Lynx golf supported by the pro game. But, you know, the, there's a lot lot in that commercially that's that's not easy to put together necessarily. And, uh, I think the, the players love coming to Lynx courses. I remember, I um, can't remember now if it was 2015 or 2010, but I was... It was a practice round day at the Open, and uh, John Daly was wandering down the first fairway in a four ball when I was going past the cart. He looked around, and I heard him say to his players, the guys he was playing with, as he looked around, God, this is it, doesn't get better than this, does it? And I thought, well, wow, that's, uh, that's an accolade, yeah. John Daly, and uh, made me feel pretty good about Lynx Golf, to be honest, and, and, it, and its attraction. I, I've not forgotten that.
0: I guess you hear that sentiment quite often, though. I mean, amongst a lot, a lot of the players you no doubt, you spent you know a fair bit of time with um, over the years at the Open. I imagine that that sentiment's fairly common. Yeah, held I,
1: I think it is. I think the, the people who have been around think about the game, think about how it can be played differently, and so on. Love the challenge of links, mm. which is which is different to, mm. to the target golf. Perhaps they they get more more often than they'd like.
2: Is there a favourite Open Championship memory? has been probably been so many well you know there, this is a, I mean there's got to be some good stories in those yeah years, I, i'm <laughs> often
1: asked this question and uh, my favorite open championship memory goes way back long before i was at the rna really yeah and i was like in 1969 i was at just finishing at university and it it had been so long since there's been a british winner of the open and we'd been told we were useless compared with the Australians and the Americans and all this and suddenly Jacqueline won and uh, that was a magical moment it was almost like being liberated. God we aren't so bad after yeah. all you know and that you know that was the start of the European Renaissance in golf. I, I have no doubt of it and uh, not a dry eye in the house really it was it was a great moment it had been so long it was yeah. you had to go back to 1951 when Max Faulkner won. To, to find yeah. a, another British winner. And if, you, if you'd grown up in golf in that period, it was quite easy to have an inferiority complex, uh, and so on. Of so course, one thing- carry
2: that with us a bit today, don't Well, we? so uh, well I, I like we not even, to,
1: yeah. You know. One thing I, we haven't touched on, I remember, is of course when I started to play as a boy, it was the small ball, yeah. the 1.62. And that's only really changed for for me, I suppose. Um, in the early 70s really although the rule didn't actually force the small ball out until the 1990s, you could still play it but uh, you know, medals and tournaments were being played by the, with the small ball in the 60s and uh, I honestly can hardly remember it now yeah. the British manufacturers it was pretty clear to me didn't want to change to the 1.68 and the one point six eights that they produced at that time went nowhere, it was like hitting mm. a pudding oh, yes. <laughs> and when uh, I was at university at Cambridge and Leonard Crawley who was our mentor there had been to America came back with a, a bucket full of tight list big balls and he realized you oh, these aren't so bad after all that uh, that we we made the switch but it was uh it was quite a change I suppose although you, you quite quickly got used to it. it was certainly a lot easier to chip and I don't know about putt with, but certainly to pick up chip mm. shots than the small balls.
2: I'm right in saying the pros for a while had to play the big ball and the just played the small ball. Yeah, I, well, you, you,
1: the big ball was never outlawed because it was a, the 1.62 was a minimum mm. dimension in the rules. So you could play at 1.68. Yes. If you wanted. Um, but in windy weather or whatever, I guess the, the marble was the better one to play. Although <laughs> I can really hardly remember what, knowing what the difference was.
0: Yeah, I've seen from some people saying it, it went considerably further the smaller ball, and as you, as you mentioned, there, like Yeah, as the name, <laughs> the nickname suggests, it's a giveaway. Yeah. But, um, and probably better in the wind too. But I would think
1: so. But uh, it's 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 so hard to remember. I, I think I do remember feeling that the big ball soared into the wind mm. a lot more than the small one. But uh, soon had to get get used to it.
2: Funny that you think that you mentioned about that British inferiority complex, just coming back to it. And you do think about the one fiftieth this year and you think oh, that would just be absolutely brilliant, wouldn't it, if we could have a you know, someone from Britain that could win that remarkable stuff really. Yes. Um I just sort of some other, other kind of tournament memories. I think um before we started rolling into it, we talked a little bit about Augusta National and, and some of the time spent over there. I'd be yes. curious to know about some of your masters masters' memories there.
1: Well, the Masters is a, is all, all the major championships have have a different feel to them, you know, a different character, and Augusta has very much has its own character. It's 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 not unlike Wimbledon in a way in tennis. Yeah. It's it's got that similar atmosphere about it, and. Uh, very well organized on, a, on an iconic golf course. And one of the great advantages, if you like, that the Masters have, it's played on the same course every year. So on television, people know the course, yeah. etc., which they don't necessarily at a U.S. Open or even an Open Championship um, to the same degree and so it's very popular it's almost the start of the golf season here isn't it so not quite true but it almost you know once once the masters is over you see you see tour, no. tourists flocking to st andrews it's probably just the time of year really but then they they come along and uh i was fortunate to be to be a referee at the masters i think every year between 2000 and uh maybe 2019 or so mm. so uh yeah and uh it's quite high pressure, I suppose, being a referee if, if something happens. But quite often nothing happens. And, uh, Is it the
0: same format as, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but with the, with the Open, the referee will be designated with a group and you'll you'll no, follow the group no. around? at it's Augusta you, you're
1: put in a, on a hole. Right, okay. And I, I posi- it's, a, it's a very highly refereed event, although the referees hold back. And, uh, yeah, you're put on a hole, a different hole each day probably. Mm. And if there's three of you on a hole, you probably interchange positions and so on but my, you know my, my story that I've I bored everyone with uh, for so long is uh, when Tiger chipped in on the 16th famously uh, in 05 I think it was and, and the Nike swoosh falls into the hole um, I was probably the closest person in the world to him when he hit that shot because I was the referee on the hole and had to move my chair when his tee shot was in the air as it landed when I was sitting and um People don't remember this, but the ball was right up against the collar of yeah. Ruff. So his, his club had to go through that collar, strike the ball, up the green and roll back into the hole. And uh, he's got a big picture behind his desk, Tiger, of the whole world going berserk, including him. And yes. one person, yeah. dead. pan. me, watching this. And he sent me a copy of this. Get a little excitement in your life, and uh, I've got that one upstairs <laughs> in my study. Yeah, stoicism, <laughs> yeah. And he remembers it because he told that story amazingly at a recent Masters press conference. So uh, uh, I'll never forget that. It was really quite funny. Had the picture been taken a couple of seconds later, I was jumping up and down too. Really? But I'm not. I'm not telling anyone that, <laughs> although I, the, I just I mean, did.
2: It it'll always go down and will in history as you know one of the one of the most iconic shots in golf that will ever be played. Mm. Yeah, and you, you've got a front row seat point there and you've you sounds like you've really contained your excitement there beyond a the level that I would have been capable mm. of. They have like a different energy well, in the I, air? I, I, mean, I did, kind
1: of felt, you know, as referee, you're not supposed to leap up and down. I know, maybe in, but in I couldn't. One just, yeah. But it was the only time, you know, I, I can remember when Tiger seemed to lose concentration mm. because he then bogeyed the next yeah, two holes just, yeah. and you could see on the 17th
0: tee he was still... A bit too charged up. Yeah,
1: and, and then eventually won the Masters in a playoff that year. I think, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's yeah, right, yeah. Yes, Chris Marco yeah, yeah, Chris DeMarco. So uh, I'd, I'd stood there, and, and, or sat there in my rules position, watched tee shot after tee shot come in, hit the green and roll back down towards the hole. And from where I was sitting, you couldn't tell from the side if they were going to go in or not, but he knew it was going in. No question. Really? No question, he knew. Yeah. yeah, His eyes when he chips it's, it's yeah. papers, yeah. Yeah. it, it's so. laser focused, isn't it? And uh, yeah, he's been there. Know, people compare different eras, and all you can be is the, the best of mm-hmm. your time. And he was certainly the best of his time.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I guess with uh having seen him up close so often, you know things that I've I've only sort of seen him from a hundred yards away once in in 2010 when uh, you know I was yeah. sort of 15 years old and maybe couldn't quite sort of soak it all in. But um you know the sort of the, the stories that we hear about. You know being able to hear the kind of tiger roars echoing throughout the course and and the size of the galleries that he would attract oh, yeah. i guess being being a referee up close there on on a whole like 16 and just just seeing the sort of change in atmosphere when when he comes along is is pretty remarkable it, it's very it's very noticeable um i remember when the open was at turnbury
1: one year and uh, rio ishikawa was very popular in japan as a player and they called him the prince didn't they uh, under some pressure from Japanese media, um, the amazingly the, the computerized draw brought him together with Tiger Woods, <laughs> 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 and I've never seen so many media follow a, a group of the Open in my life. Really? Yeah, it was really tough to control. Japanese media were out in millions.
2: <laughs> yeah, just not understanding the protocol at oh all. No, and just going you know, crazy. They were so excited. Just about it. the excitement levels and, off uh, the charts. And
1: Japanese TV ratings through the roof and things. So uh, Yeah, all, all these things are factored into the draw
0: <laughs> When you get to an open week like that, um, w- w- would you kind of feel a sense of, of nervousness? I mean w- mm. about, As things were building in scale as you, you know mentioned at the start of the podcast you see the grandstands going up you think about You know the size of the galleries and how you're going to manage. I mean, I guess it's, it's common yeah, it, I mean, venues. As, as
1: time went by I think one got more and more confident yeah. about it, but uh there was always a bit of apprehension as to what was going to happen and so on. I think that much of the apprehension I had was about the weather. Mm. Not just whether it was going to be bad on the championship days, but could we keep the course firm and fast? Would the rain keep off and all that kind of thing was was always a bit of a worry. But, you know, you had to play with what you got. And, uh, and it's it's a very well-oiled machine now, setting up the Open. Uh, and every year it, it, it expands and, and grows. It'd be very interesting to see. I mean, the, the, for example, this year is the first time there's been a ballot for tickets, and you can't pay on the gate. Mm. So it'd be quite interesting to see see how that worked. And
0: uh, I think we're going to see a very big crowd, very big. Talking about growing the game, um, so the, the, the wider discussion around that. Obviously, one of your other very important roles was uh, as president of the International Golf Federation, um, which helped secure golf's reintroduction to the olympics in rio in, in 2016 how did, how did that come about
1: well we it was a long process and um there were many many people in golf of course who quite understandably said look the major championships and we we, we must remember to talk about the women's game and all this too the major championships are the pinnacle of golf golf doesn't need the olympics etc but at the same time there were so many smaller countries in golf who said look if golf was an olympic sport it would absolutely be a game changer for in our country for publicity for the game for government support and all of that and in the end those those voices you know began to mean more and more and more and uh, we thought well we'll have a, we'll we'll go for this and we we, we had a false start uh, a pretty poor presentation back in 03, I think it was, or '02. But for the Olympics always worked seven years ahead. So golf was actually accepted into the Olympics mm. at the IOC session in Copenhagen in 2009 for the 2016 Olympics in Rio. And we, we were ready for it. Um, and we took with us to the final presentations. Podrig Harrington came. Um, Suzanne Petterson, Michelle Wee and Matteo Manasera were were our team and Tai Votor from the PGA Tour and myself. Ty was vice president of the IGF and uh, we had a consultant um, helping us, a very experienced Olympic guy, as to how we should make this presentation and the presentation was to be on a Saturday morning and Quite late on Friday night when we were rehearsing what we had to do, he said, you know, I think we should do the first bit of this in French because the Olympic languages are English and French. And he thought that will get you more votes, you know, if you do this in French. Well, Ty Votor was due to do this first part. Well, he was out of the room, down the corridor. You couldn't <laughs> sing for dust. And I had, to, I had to do the French bit, just, uh, which was quite harrowing, actually, I must say. But got through it. And... Um, Michelle Wee was astonishing, because the the um, consultant had prepared a uh, a document for, uh, that she should speak to and what she was going to say. And she looked at it, put it down, and was word perfect in it. Quite a Must lot. have had some sort of photographic memory, astonishing. Yeah. And Matteo Manassero, who at that time I think was 16 years old, and I think had just won the amateur. I think I'm right there. Um, He stood up age 16 in front of a huge crowd of people and gave a two-minute thing not in his first language mind in English you know, he's Italian and They did wonderfully well all four of them Podrig and Suzanne too and that helped us and we yeah, we were voted in for Rio Mm. and then of course um, in a sense Rio had only just been elected the the host city two days before so their bid for uh, the olympics didn't include golf because they didn't know golf yeah. was going to be in it was quite an odd sequence there and of course there wasn't a golf course in rio that was really up to the task of the modern professional so we had to build on them and uh, start that from scratch and, and find the land and get all the ecological permissions and so on and uh, find the find an architect and gil hans was chosen and he did a terrific job building that course and uh, I think I'm right in saying it's the only Olympic venue in Rio that's still in daily use down there. Is yeah. that right? So I think so. Yeah. Not as later. close to it as I was, uh, but that was certainly true a couple of years ago.
2: I think uh, that's the great thing about golf is, you know, it's, you know it's, a, it's a plain pitch that can be used as a professional event one week and then... They aren't course today. Whereas, yeah. yeah, you look at the stadium and infrastructure; it's just white elephants isn't yeah. it, a lot of the time. Yeah. And how on earth do you use those after the Olympics has gone and gone away? You know. So
1: yeah, golf. Amazingly, well, it was first in the Olympics in in 1900, and then in 1904, and fell away. And it was one of the very few sports then to be played by men and women mm. in the games. And and then. Reasons we never really got to the bottom of it, it didn't get played in 08 in London and wasn't played right up until Rio.
2: I never quite understand, and I, I, I should know this, but I never fully understand the mix between amateur and professional sports within the Olympic context. And whether was there ever a discussion about whether golf coming back into the Olympics should have been. At an amateur oh, many many people thought
1: that, but the, the those people were not up to date with the Olympics. I mean, we don't yeah. we don't think Usain Bolt was no, an amateur. They're 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 professional athletes. Um, the professional athletes, and you know the the Olympics movement wanted the best athletes yeah. in the world. They wanted Tiger Woods or whoever. You know, Tiger couldn't play because of injury and so on. But uh, but no, that that was old hat. I think only boxing did that apply. Amateur yes. boxing as opposed to a professional. Um, and, of course, it was supported very well by the women golfers, almost 100%, you know, went there, wanted it. Some of the top men didn't want to play. Uh, but that that improved in Tokyo. And if you look at tennis, which got into the Olympics in the 80s, it was quite a while before all the top players played there. Sampras didn't play for two or three Olympics, I don't think. Um, so I think it's very well established now on the, the Olympic firmament. It's... Um, it's widened golf's competitive landscape you know for four years Justin Rose on the tee was announced as the Olympic champion yeah that's he was pretty pleased what an ambassador he was for Olympic golf uh, we had a press conference the morning after he won the the men's event and um, the easiest press conference I ever did because no one asked me anything it was just Justin and, uh, every question that was asked I thought well the perfect answer to this is and Justin would give it all better he was just fantastic uh, Great ambassador for it, but the the support we got from the women's game was huge as well. And great podium of, of medal winners, both for the
0: men's and women's events. Yeah, I mean, we, we obviously hear the expression a lot now about growing the game um, mm. in, in golf, which I think you know, although although the sentiment's right, maybe maybe the terminology's kind of overused, but it, it's kind of by the by because it, it, what it's driving at is is really really important for golf, I think, and and it's something that we've seen coming. Coming through the pandemic is how much participation's increased, and you look at events like the Olympics, and it seems that they're absolutely critical for um, for growing, you know, participation in the game. Um, and although I guess you know the, the concerns around Zika virus and maybe the sort of tepid uptake by a few of the top pros to begin with, actually to hear someone like Rory McIlroy, who was initially a bit a bit reluctant, to say mm. that you know he's never tried so hard to finish third in his life at, in sure. Tokyo and see. Morikawa there as Open champion, it seems like it's 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 becoming firmly established as a...
1: Yeah, I, I think as well the uh, the the top golfers appreciate the experience that they don't otherwise get of mixing with the top players from other sports mm. and, and realise what they have to do to get to the yeah, top of their, their events and so on. A number of the, the top players said that to me. Do you know, God, what they these people have to go through, be it a, a weightlifter or a gymnast or whatever. I, I remember... Just in saying that he was astonished about how noisy it was at a gymnastics event, and if it was that noisy in golf, they couldn't play. Yet these gymnasts are supposed to go through their routines with all this background noise going on. Mm -hmm. How do they do it? So you know, they 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 learned from it, I think, and appreciated it, enjoyed it too.
2: Is golf a global enough game at the moment? Do you think it's kind of? Do you think there's enough interest around the world? Do you think? How does some of the Stuff that's now on the table with you know perhaps professional golf, you know, Premier Golf League, Saudi Golf League, you know some of the breakaway tours there. Maybe looking at events in different countries. How does that all come together in maybe broadening appeal of the game around the globe? And you know, where does that all end up? Do you think? I, I know it's a broad question, but well, I, I think yeah. I think
1: golf has has and and golf getting into the Olympics added. I think thirty one. National golf associations to the to the list, yeah. Yeah. Who suddenly got affiliated because golf was in the Olympics, and that's not to say that meant that golf was booming in those countries. It wasn't, but at least it got some infrastructure started. And so I think I think the the expansion of the game to other countries will just naturally come as as countries develop and both economically and socially and 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 so on. Um, Breakaway leagues, I don't know. Obviously, with my world rankings hat on, uh, one has to look at these things um, fairly and dispassionately. Mm. When they come along, right now, um, I don't know anything about players. I don't know anything about venues. I don't know anything about schedules. It's it's just conversation to me, and um, I don't don't know where it will go. It's for others to. There's so much speculation
2: and hype, isn't there? And it it feels like there's just so much on the rumor mill with player X, Y, and Z has made an agreement in principle, but it all seems to have in the last few weeks died away a little bit. But I I do, you know, I think at the very least there's always, you know, some merit in, in, you know, changing, you know, taking events to places they may not have been before or, you know, just the concept of certain events. I think sometimes 72-hole stroke play can feel a little tiring at times and seeing, you know, a bit of a change around on some of that. But like you say, it's crystal ball, really, and no one seems to know where it'll end up in in due course
1: no I think that's right time will tell I, I, I can't forecast um, and I'm not to be honest close enough to mm. it to, to comment um, it does seem to ebb and flow um, I'm sure the PGA Tour um, and, and by the way I must say that the PGA Tour and and the European Tour had, who had a bit of a harder job about this because of the international nature of the Tour came through the Covid Pandemic and the lockdown amazingly well and provided playing opportunities for their their members. I thought that was uh, that was really strong and um, The Asian tour unfortunately wasn't able to do that quite so well. So it had a bad couple of years um, And I'm sure the PGA tour have been very heartened by the the, the supporting statements Supportive statements mm. they've had from so many players recently. So I, I don't know where this goes Um I'm sure the, the the people in charge now are well, are dealing with it in the best way they know. We'll just have to see.
0: Yeah, diving into the official World Golf ranking a little bit more because I mean, that that itself is, has undergone some changes in the last year or so and, and changes that are, I guess, being introduced and, and further changes that will be introduced in, in the coming years in terms of ranking points and how strength of field is assessed and I guess you know that's all designed to maybe level the playing field a little bit with that, the number of of different tours there are out there and having some sense of a comparison um, What's it been like sort of, in the, in those discussions there when you're looking at a lot of these themes that we've talked about in the podcast You know the growth of the professional game the proliferation of a number of different tours out there um, How's that that process played well, out? The,
1: the 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 growth of the game and, and the, the increasing number of tours and tournaments in, in a sense makes a world ranking system more difficult mm. because yeah, how do you assess how a player in Japan who only plays in Japan uh, compares with a player in America who perhaps only plays in America and so on? It, it, it is quite difficult. But mathematically, and there are enough uh, data points out there to conduct these statistical comparisons, and the, there is a new ranking system coming in in August of this year, um, which um, is a result of... of an in-depth mathematical analysis of the existing system, and the existing system did find some bias. That, sorry, the, the the analysis did some find some bias with the existing system, and it's those biases that are basically being corrected in the in the new one.
2: Is this the migration to the strokes gained approach? Yes. Been yeah. the, the, the key metric for yeah. yes it is and, st- and strength of field will still continue to be a leading driver of how many points are up for grabs very within much, those very much because I so. mean you know, strength of field is just everything to these guys isn't it really it that is. they're playing I mean, it
1: it, but what, what, what we do have in the existing system is, is tour minimums mm. and flagship events which get more points and, and it's those things largely not only but those things largely that cause the bias and they're going to be eliminated in the new system um, now some people might say well won't that make it more difficult for a player from a lesser tour if I can use that expression to um, to get ahead and the answer is well that might be but I think it's a matter for the tours to find pathways not a, not a matter for the world ranking system to find no. pathways and um, we're hanging our hat on that and, uh, and the tours will respond to that I'm quite sure. Because the world
2: ranking system should just be an objective way of assessing Player ability in a in a given moment, right? The, the tours should be able to provide, like you say, the pathway and the progression, and make sure that new talent emerges and that legacies are kept and all that sort of good stuff. I think. Uh, absolutely,
1: so that's that's where we are with that. And uh, the women's ranking, of course, is looking hard at what we're doing uh, in the men's. And uh,
2: do they mirror the same approach, or is that not exactly, but pretty different? close,
1: pretty close? Um, and uh, they they perhaps. Do have a greater concentration of, of where the top players are playing um, than, than the men's, slightly, um, and and they provide, I think, a pretty accurate ranking. But mm. I'm, I'm sure they'll they'll look at what the, the men's rankings doing and 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 see. And it's quite interesting that we're we're using a lot of the work that the RNA have done on the world amateur ranking as a part of this this new system. As Is well.
2: that right, really?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that is a much more diverse ranking than the professional yeah. one because it covers so many more players yeah. uh, who will never play against each other <laughs> yeah, around he, the world. You know, the yeah. New South Wales amateur, you might never see some of those players
0: again anywhere else. a lot again. of it's so, match play uh, and yeah, it's yeah,
2: disparate yeah. fields, it, random course setups. It, yeah. Et
0: cetera, et cetera. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, that, that covers such a, a, a huge array of um, events. I mean, like even playing university golf, having some events that are designated a sort of a D category or so, and then mm-hmm. you have the 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 Bs and the As and the elites, and and I guess being able to to cater to all those different um, strengths of field and and you know different climates, different kind of uh, events, stroke play, match play, and so on. Um, really, quite an achievement to try and bring all of that together into into one wouldn't, amateur. Wouldn't ranking. bother you, though, as you only play in the As. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I only play match play. I won't, won't put my name into any sort of straight play. But you're going to start picking
2: up some wagger points, Bruce. The road oh, to Cyprus 25 uh, is on for you isn't uh, now. Definitely
0: not. Um, I would really
2: like that if you could get Cyprus point
0: in 25. <laughs> Circling back on, um, on, on the Open and the RNA, the women's game, I think it seems to have gone from strength to strength in, in recent years. And mm. it seems that the... Um, the ladies british open has, has really been embraced in in recent years um by a lot of the top professionals when that maybe wasn't necessarily the case and it seems that the, the sort of majors in the women's game have maybe been a bit more fluid and a bit more dependent on on certain sponsors here and there but uh yeah how do you how do you see the sort of women's game going forward and then closing that gap with with the men's game
1: well well it's it's probably the biggest potential growth area isn't it in in golf um more and more women are starting to play and, and, and more and more will come. I think since the merger with the LGU, the RNA have really embraced their, their role in the women's game and, and, and they've moved the events that they're responsible for right up in terms of standard and how they're run and and, and, and who comes and plays in them and so on. That's great. And the the A's women's in golf charter and and all the things they're doing to try to encourage family golf and so on will will bear fruit. I'm sure. Um, it's good to see, quite honestly. Um, and don't you think? I, I think now that the women's game is more exposed on television, perhaps than it was. It's certainly in Britain that that a lot of amateur golfers find it easier to relate to when they're watching it, and they still love to watch the men, of course, and good they but are. But it's
2: a different game for it, the when you watch the top flight. Pressure again. it's a different game they're playing and i don't think many any amateurs really can identify to it i think you can watch the ladies and you can to to an extent identify
1: yes i, I think you can
2: and i don't I mean that not in a critical and, way and you know some go. of the
1: top women now are really 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 good players and, and respond really well under pressure that uh, mm-hmm. jy co isn't it sort of, she's a fantastic player under pressure and yeah, I've it, never seen a putter like in B. And March, the hosting potential the is anyway, huge
2: because you can have you know some of these great you know American golden age classics that you know are you know I'd say it largely redundant for the top fifty players in the world today just purely on distance. So you know the the, the opportunity to have more events. I think they're taking the um, Curtis Cup, for example, is going to to uh, Merion, I think, isn't it, in a year at his time or something mm-hmm. like that. So they, all of these events can start to. To happen at you know places that you maybe don't get to see as a showcase very yes, often, which yes. I think is great. Well,
1: Marion's an ideal length, I would think, for a Curtis Cup. And so yeah. on. And, uh They squeeze the U.S. Open in there, not so long. Yeah, ago. yeah true. Um, of course. Which, which was a but well, justin's. It's
2: major, a bad example, maybe, right? but you know what, I, what I'm. Yeah, you, I, I do. Think, I think You can have. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think that's great.
1: Yes, and. Um, I, I think oh. I think it's great that the the open venues will be used for mm. the women's game and and. Some of them, I think, um, lend themselves to it very well. Muirfield's a classic example. It's always in great condition, Muirfield. And uh I um I played over there with a woman professional called Sarah Kemp. She's an Australian, good player. And uh she was very keen to play there and, and we had a game and well she knocked it round seventy two, no problem, from the the men's medal tee, without wow. holding anything. And uh you'll see some great scoring, I'm quite sure.
2: What do they say? They can have an open at a week's notice at
1: Muirfield, can't they? That's almost true if you didn't have to build grandstand yes. from a course condition. Carnoustie's the same. Carnoustie's always in great shape. Um, the the East Coast courses have a, have a bit of a longer season than the West. They don't seem to be quite as, as wet and soft in the early part of the season. Um, but no, Muirfield and Carnoustie have always been outstanding in condition, as is the old course most of the time. But mm-hmm. it gets so much play, and you've got to be careful with it.
2: I mean, we're we're obviously huge golf course perverts, aren't we, on this podcast and we're huge hugely into, you know, architecture and golf travel and stuff. You've played a lot of golf, you've travelled all over the place. Yeah, you know, where are some of the real favorites that you've you've got to, to see on your on your travels? Goodness me. Um, I know you'll be really I modest think... here as well, but I, I really encourage you not to be in <laughs> five minutes.
1: I think the uh if you talk about the open venues first of all, do I have a favourite No I don't because they I'm they're all favourites in different ways. St Andrews certainly for atmosphere. Muirfield because of it, it's 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 perhaps what you see is what you get type of thing. Carnoustie because it's so difficult and so on. I think the new layout at Turnbury is phenomenal. Really? Yeah. Um, I was actually involved in doing that with with Martin Ebert and indeed uh, Mr Trump, mm. and uh, that was good fun. But I think the outcome is uh, is terrific. I think that's that's a great course. Love Port Rush. Marvelous. Go wider afield. Um, always enjoy a trip to Pine Valley. That's mm-hmm. sensational. But a, a great favourite of mine is, is where the Walker Cup was played uh, back in 2001 at Ocean Forest and Sea okay. Island, Georgia. That's, a, I think, a fantastic layout.
2: Sea Island's quite a big pro player hangout, isn't it? Is that right? It is. A a huge Lodden, number of them are the there. Uh,
1: right there. Kuchar, Zach yeah. Johnson, Davis Love, um, Jonathan Bird. Uh, quite a few. There'll be some I've missed out. There.
2: Ocean Forest. And that's just a just a really good book. That's it's not somewhere, obviously, Pine Valley is somewhere you hear so much about. <laughs> yeah. and, you know, it's never short of hyperbole, but Ocean Forest is one that, you know, very special place. It, you know. Yeah,
1: it's a beautiful course. And it, it, it's in marshland and so on. And there's a lot of water on it. But it's it's just a great layout and always in great shape. But you know there are many many courses around the world that I haven't been near. Yeah, sure. Sandbelt courses in Melbourne, of course, are very special.
2: You've uh, done you've done quite a bit of the Sandbelt, have you? Is yeah, it, I have. It? Yeah,
1: um, Royal Melbourne, Kingston Heath, Victoria, mm. um, all these places are, are are great great courses and uh, very natural as well. Just bunkers just cut out of the fairways. and...
2: Yeah, right, it's amazing how right. they do that. You don't see much of that anywhere else. Yeah. That sort of very sharp edging of bunkers around the greens. Around the green, that, yeah, because you know, yeah, I think cuts, yeah. Yeah, it must be underpinned quite heavily with the. Someone
1: told me they stopped taking is. trolleys over the greens down there. Now. Really, I don't, I don't know if that's true, but. Uh,
0: yeah, that always used to be the case. Yeah. the big sort of big wheel trolleys. Just wheel trolleys. It, yeah, yeah. They, it really speeded up play. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Am I right in saying? I know this is just going off complete tangent here. Um but obviously you mentioned Melbourne Sandbelt there. McKenzie had a huge influence with the course design out there. As secretary and chief executive of the R&A, you have the Mackenzie old course map in your office. Is that is that right? I is did that, have, yes. I think, it, I think it's been
1: moved elsewhere in the clubhouse now. That's it? Yeah.
2: Is, it, that, is that, that quite a sort of special little piece that
1: sort of? Yeah, I always at. enjoyed sitting under that. Uh, and, you know, you keep referring to it. What's that bunker called? Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, um, and... Uh, no, great stuff, and one of the, the things—I <laughs> don't know why this has just come to mind. It must be something to do with talking about Australia. When, when distance measuring devices came along, and we had to consider those, uh, I was a bit anti them actually because I couldn't. Brilliant. Yeah, because I couldn't really see where this would end. You know, if a distance measuring device is okay, what about a wind meter? Mm. What about an altitude meter? And it, it's easier to say we'll have none of them. Then you'll have one, yeah. and so on. you
2: can't put the toothpaste back in the tube, can you? you no. Easily, and anyway, but it, it's, this is this is long long
1: since project. past. But I, I remember there was a a huge debate about um, whether they would speed up play or not. That that was it, it was the speed up yeah. play connection That's what it was before. And uh, you know, are these things going to make play faster or not? And there was a a wonderful moment in the big room at the R and A when one of our members, who's also a member at the other another club, this is an anti Scottish story. This one. Said, well, they don't speed up play at our club, and I said, well, why is that, Jim? And he said, because four of us share one. <laughs> 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 which I thought was a tremendous moment in the in the annals of distance measuring devices. <laughs> you must have so many stories. Lots of stories, I suppose, over the years, and uh, lots of people that I never dreamt I would meet uh, that I have met through golf. You know, before I got the r a job. I, never thought I'd ever have lunch with Clint Eastwood, but I did. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So he came to the RNA. People come through the RNA. Bill Clinton, uh, F.W. de Klerk, all these people. They all want to come in the clubhouse. And you just get a sort of of
2: of special, sort of just pops upstairs and said, well, you know, we've got a couple of... Well, yeah. You know, Bill... Do you want to pop down and say hi? Well, yes, I'd quite like to say hi to Bill Clinton. That sort of thing.
1: And I had 20 minutes with him one-on-one in the trophy room at the RNA, and his knowledge of the history of golf was extraordinary. Really? Bill Clinton? Absolutely extraordinary and uh, that was good um, yeah and the yeah presidents of the usa and first did ministers of scotland sort
2: of and so of <laughs> mo with it all where if someone was coming you thought well i've got a little trail sort of i'll sort of show them around the the big room and then i'll sort of take them into the library or anything of that sort of stuff did you have like a little thing where you gave them a little tour or
1: oh, you sort well, of like just took them
2: to a certain table or a just in your put mind in a certain really. spot?
1: um i remember when bill came in bill clinton I knew that the, the Friday night drinking gang in the RNA, just some of the older local yeah. members would go in for an hour about 6 o'clock. And I knew Bill would be coming in and I knew he wouldn't have a tie on, which you have to have to be, even today, to be in the big room at the RNA. And I knew I was going to take him in the big room, so I thought <laughs> I don't want any trouble here. So I went to these guys and I, look, fellas, you're going to have Bill Clinton coming in here in a minute. He's not going to have a tie on. Okay, no problem, fine. So uh, after I was with him for 20 minutes, we went into the big room, went down introduced him to these old boys, and they were just ready for him. And and one of them took one look at him and said, Who are you? (laughs) It was just just a classic funny moment. Bill thought it was pretty funny as well. (laughs) Did it deliberately. Uh, No, but you you meet so many people in golf, and, and, and golf people are generally pretty nice to know, I find. Yeah privileged to to work among them with them and for them really for all that time at the rna i was uh privileged to do the job and uh nothing but happy memories really
0: well thank you being thank you for being so generous with your time peter and and, and talking us through so many of these um these brilliant stories and and just um yeah discussing with us some of the sort of uh, big themes in the game and who knows where it'll all end up but it seems like it's in pretty pretty good hands at the moment um and a lot of a lot of positive developments to to look forward to so uh, thank you so much for, oh, it's a pleasure. for the, the game podcast. the game's in great
1: hands and there will always be issues and it will always be developing and that's why it's so interesting and so much so many of us love it i've enjoyed this morning thanks so much watch, watch.
2: Thanks, watch this